section of Ephesians 4 from verse 1 to verse 16 that we've just read, as I said last week, it deals with church unity. It is the, the, the subject matter, and it is the subject matter that is of supreme importance for us. Inasmuch as upon it depends the greater glory of God in the world, the greater edification of the saints in the church, and the greater effectiveness of us as witnesses to unbelievers. It is a, uh, an interesting uh, fact to note when our Lord Jesus was praying his high priestly prayer recorded for us in John chapter 17, the, the, the part where he prays for the whole church, uh, past, present, and future, he prays for us. It is an interesting thing to note that four times the Lord there emphasizes or prays, pleads in, with the Lord, uh, his, with the Father, that the church would be one. He says, I do not pray for these alone, speaking of the apostles, the disciples there, but also for those, you and me, who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and you are in me. And then he says, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So Jesus connects our oneness, our unity, to our effectiveness of witnessing to an unbelieving world that they should believe. Interesting. Then he goes on to say, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. He connects that unity with our growth, with our perfecting, with our being equipped, and that the world, again, may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So church unity accomplishes all these things, but today we're not looking at John 17, we're looking at Ephesians 4. And here in Ephesians 4, truly, the unity of the church is emphasized. I don't think, even if I tried, and even if I had all the capacity in the world to, to expound and to, and to break up this passage, I don't think I would be able to overestimate or overemphasize the importance of church unity. Because in the words of the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says that the church, the unity of the church is paramount to the life, the health, and the ministry of every local church. Church unity is paramount for the life of this church. Church unity is paramount for the health of this church. If we're not a united church, if we're not a body of believers that, that knits together, as Paul wrote, later say, this church is not healthy. If this church is not united, the ministry of this church will not move. That's why, as I mentioned this last week, what we need to have a, a, a supernatural spiritual vision of these things. That's why the enemy of our souls, our, the devil, he attacks church unity. That's one of his favorite tactics in destroying, hindering the work of the church. It is a sobering reality. It should be a sobering reality to all of us. 
every effort, as we saw last week, every effort to preserve, to treasure that unity. And that's what Paul dealt with in the first six verses that we considered, uh, considered last week. That the church is united. We do not struggle with that unity. Psalm 17 is clear. Uh, our Lord is clear that we are one uh, in him. So we are united, whether we like it or not. Our role, our job, is to preserve it, to uh, further it, to nourish it. I think a good example, a good illustration of this, something that uh, will help us grasp this, is the subject of marriage. When a, a man and a woman, and yes, it's just a man and a woman in marriage, not, not, not multiple genders, but when a man and a woman uh, marry, are married to one another, what we believe and what scripture tells us is that they become one flesh, they become united. Now, the reality is that that unity in several marriages is not really practical. In fact, one of the many advices, even the, the, the world in their common grace uh, recognizes this, uh, even world, uh, worldly advisors, secular advisors say this, is that husband and wife, they need to work in that relationship. Because if they don't, if they're stagnant, if they're not actively pursuing to, to grow in that unity, the reality is that they will begin to, to, to lose that practical unity between them. Well, the same thing happens to us as a church. If we don't actively nourish, preserve, uh, further it, encourage that unity through what the mentioned last week, which we won't get into today, we're not stagnant. That is a lie of the devil. If you're not actively pursuing it, you're not just stopped in the place where you are. You are moving backwards. You are uh, devolving. You are declining in that unity. So we must be careful. We must keep it as a treasure because it is our most precious treasure as a church. And we must keep it as a treasure because it is where most often churches go awry, as they say. Because it is in our dealings with one another that the unity can be affected. And that's what Paul dealt with in verses 1 through 6. But today we will be dealing, and sermons have a life of their own, uh, or sermon times have a life of their own next week. I was hoping to deal with verse 7 to verse 15 today. So we'll just deal with 7 to 12. We'll leave the, the, the remaining four verses to next week. But today in verse 7 to 12, the Apostle Paul continues to, work, to deal with this theme. Not so much on, uh, on the necessity to keep unity and how it is, is, it is kept and what that unity consists of, but in verses 7 to, to, to 12, Paul speaks about how, what, what that unity looks like. How does that unity display itself in a mixed congregation like churches are, like our church is? And Paul tells us with, with no shadow of a doubt that although there is unity, unity does not mean uniformity. We're not all the same. That's, that's not a shock for any of us, I'm sure. But it is something for us to, to 
mindful of so that we all make the far law Jesus with the angel of The unity or cube, that's the negative side. We are not all together. If you want to put it in a positive affirmation, the unity of believers is perfectly compatible with the diversity of characters and gifts. We are one, but we are not identical. We are one, but we are not identical. And that's the, the illustration that Paul uses in, in the Corinthians. We, we read Pastor Ted Lent, uh, last week, where Paul speaks of the body with many members. Some are hands, some are uh, feet, some are eyes. We're not all the same. We're not uniform, but we are united in the same body. We don't all occupy the same place in the body, nor do we all have the same function within the body. But instead, that this, instead of dividing us, this, instead of creating a chasm between us, this actually makes us work together for the good of the whole. That is the point that Paul makes there. In 1 Corinthians, if you read the, the, the first uh, few verses, uh, last week we read the, the, the more prolonged uh, passage, but he says there in verse 7 through to 12, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are diversity of gifts, but it's the same spirit. And there are four basic teachings that I would want us to consider from this passage from verse uh, 7 to verse 12 this morning. So the first teaching is that we all, we all, right? If you're a member of Christ's body, if you're a member of this congregation, and by the way, next week we will be dealing with membership of, in, the, in, the, in the local church, uh, just so you know. If there's a question about membership, uh, hold on to those questions and we'll consider next week. But the first teaching here is that believers have received spiritual gifts from Christ with which to benefit the church. We have received spiritual gifts from Christ with which we are to benefit the church. That is the first thing here. Look, look how Paul uh, introduces the, this, this section. Paul words, but all words in scripture are inspired. Paul answers, explain in verse 1 through to 6 that, the, that there is unity, that we are one, that we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. And then he says, but. But. And that but is important. It's just as inspired as any other sentence and as any other word in scripture. But. But this Paul wants to say, but hold on a minute. We are one, but the church is one. But let no one be confused about this. That doesn't mean that we are all the same. And that's what he goes on to say. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. We are not all the same. Doesn't mean that we all perform the same function in the body. No, God has sovereignly given gifts to each and every one of us uh, in this church. And, and these gifts, what are these gifts? These gifts can be gifts of, uh, that Paul speaks of to the Corinthians, gifts of encouragement, gifts of prayer, gifts of, uh, of, of stewardship. There's a multiplicity of gifts. God has given those gifts to us that we may use them for the benefit of the church. 
all saints united to Christ the head by his spirit and by faith, we are to use those gifts. Let me read to you from the confession here, because I, I, I love the wording that the, the, the framers of the confession uh, used here. He said, all saints are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith, although not, does not make them one person with him. So we are all uh, united to Christ, but we are not Christ. They have fellowship in his graces, suffering in his death, resurrection, and glory. Since they are united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces. That is the point of the church. We have communion. We have fellowship in each other's gifts and graces. And we are obligated, we are duty-bound to carry out these duties, both public and private, in an orderly way to promote their mutual service. And this is not something that some people 200, 300 years ago thought of uh, as that would be helpful. It's them working out what Scripture says. Look at how Paul expresses it in Scripture. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. God has given to each of us gifts for the profit of all. Therefore, there is unity in our diversity. Now notice how Paul expresses it further in, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. It does God will. God is the one who wills and sovereignly appoints what our role and what our function is within the body. It's not that we have a meeting beforehand and we start discussing, oh look, so-and-so does this and it's great wealth, we do it. No, it's God that gives those gifts and the church recognizes them. We don't appoint them, we don't uh, uh, make them, we recognize the gifts that God has given to us. The eye cannot say, oh, I, I, I look, I can see, so I will be the eye. No, you are an eye, you're, you're, you're the, that's the function you're going to perform. The gifts were distributed. Wonderful word here. Uh, the gifts were distributed by the Spirit. And that's how Paul expresses it here in Ephesians. That to each one of us, grace, grace is gifts uh, in this case as well, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. It was Christ the Lord who assigned the measure of grace to each of us in particular, and in a sense, you can take this a, a step back and you can look to each church, he assigns in general gifts and graces. How? By giving them each member. It's to the members that God gives graces and gifts to the church. And all of it is done in the sovereignty of God. The reverse side of this is that you are a member of this church, God has given you capacities and gifts and 
capability to serve in this church. He gave them to you and to none other, and he placed you in this church to exercise those gifts. God is wise and God is good. He gives in exact measure what we need. Therefore, the eye cannot say, well, you know what? I'd rather be a, a, a nose. Or the foot cannot say, I'd rather be a, man, a hand. There's no such thing like that. In, the, in our biological bodies, there should be no such thing like that in our church. You serve where the Lord has placed you. That's what Paul is saying here. No one is to envy the gift of another member, just as no one is to belittle the gift of another member. Yes, some gifts, some churches are more visible than others. Some of them are more public, more, more perceptible, more, uh, more perceivable. But that doesn't mean that the person who has the more public gift has uh, in any way a superiority to the brother who does something else, who, 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 who performs his duty in another capacity. Neither envy nor belittling, since it is all a, bit, a gift that bursts from God. And if you have received it, why do you boast, Paul would say. Each one of us, in 2 Corinthians and 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7 says, each one of us has his own gift. One in this manner, he says, one in the other manner. single standard well we conform spiritually to the standard of Christ but how that displays itself in our day to day lives as a church there is not one standard that we conform to this is not a, a Henry Ford kind of assembly line the church is not a Henry Ford kind of assembly line which you feed the, 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 the metal on one side and on the other side here, there comes the Albert, there comes the, the Ford, black Ford Model T's one after the other. They all look the same. The church is not like that. We will look different. And you know what? That's not a defect. That is by design of God. Now, spiritually, don't, don't misunderstand what I say. Spiritually, you are, we are being made in the image and likeness of Christ. We all are, have one example and standard that we uh, adhere to and that we uh, mold and shape and fashion ourselves to. Another uh, brother, and to and to and to 
And the brother hears of his gift of encouragement to encourage another brother. When all of a sudden we all perform the vital function in the body, equal, yet not uniform. Different, yet all necessary. And the reverse side of this, the reverse side of this, is that it's for, for whatever reason, if a brother or a sister, and, and especially in the small congregation, these things can be uh, almost imperceptible in bigger congregations, but in small congregations like that, if a brother or sister refuses to does not put his gift uh, in, in practice for the good of the body, the body suffers. It affects the whole body. If there is something that needs to be done and you are the person that can do it effectively, if you don't do it, someone else will have to step in. That thing will not be done as effectively. That thing will take the person away from their, their own roles and their, their own gifts chapter 
one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Our gifts are not for personal edification. That's where our, the charismatic movement goes so astray because they believe in such a thing as personal edification gifts. Can you imagine that? I'm a, pa I'm a pastor. I'm, uh, the gift of if I use my gift of preaching in front of the mirror to preach to myself and to no one else, that would be ridiculous. That would be ridiculous. That would make no sense. Same thing with all the other gifts. The point of the gifts here is that Christ gives the gifts for the good of the church. And we as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, uh, Peter says, if we and if anyone speaks, let him speak according to the word that God gives. If anyone ministers, let him minister according to the power that God gives, in, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Gifts are for the glory of God and for the good of the church. So when we don't use them, when we don't put them into practice, the church suffers. Of course it suffers. We're not using the ordinary means of grace that God has given to us to grow and to Thank you. 
perversion of the translation. Christ is God. But the point that Paul makes is, it is him, he is the one that gives the gift, because it was him that ascended on high, and she went captivity captive, and gave gifts to men. Through the work of the cross, through his life of humility, actually, as Paul says, he ascended because he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. The point that Paul says is, Christ humbled himself, took on human flesh, incarnated his perfect life of obedience that led to the cross, uh, that led to the death of the cross, uh, and then his resurrection and ascension. It is his victory. That's how he won. And as he wins, he leads captivity captive. He, he brings the captives of Satan and of the kingdom of darkness up, and he gives them as a gift. He, the spoils, that's the, that's the language that is uh, underlining this passage here. Uh, in, in the ancient world, a Roman uh, centurion or a Roman consul would go out into battle with the legions, and they would, he would win the battle in the fields of Gaul. And then he would come back from Gaul and, and, and go, march down to Rome, and he would enter into the city of Rome with all the spoils of war, with all the prisoners, and he would start uh, handing out those spoils of war. He would give those spoils of his victory to the people of Rome. Granted, it was mostly the patricians, never the plebeians, and so it was always the, the higher classes that got the spoils in those cases. But that is the language that is being used here of Christ. Christ won the victory through his perfect life of obedience, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection and ascension. And as he ascends, he now brings the spoils, he brings captivity captive, and he gives it out. And you ask, what is the, what are the spoils, brothers and sisters, you and me? We are the spoils of his glory. We are the, the, the prize of his victory. Isaiah 53 speaks of this, that we are the ones uh, that he will, uh, will be divided among the strong, we are that spoil. So what Paul says is that we are sent to the church. We are given, uh, and we are given to one another. All who are serving this church were once slaves of the devil, enemies of Christ. But Christ, having won the victory through his cross, having uh, led us from captivity into freedom, we're still captive to him, he now just had us divided to that is the idea here. That's the, what we see in Isaiah 53, for instance. But thirdly, we see as well that the diversity of gifts that Paul has been talking about is also manifested, or that gifts, those gifts that Christ gives, is also manifested in a special way in the offices of the church. Look at verse 11. He himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. He gave some to be apostles, that is, he gave some to the church to be apostles, to be prophets, to be evangelists, pastors, and teachers. The idea here is not so much that he received the gift of being an apostle, of being a, a, an 
evangelist, a prophet, or a pastor and teacher. The idea here is that Christ, particularly and especially gifts those people to the church. In verse 7, Paul is speaking about individual spiritual gifts, and uh, here in verse 11, Paul is speaking about the offices uh, of the church, the, the, the people that God specially gives to the church to further them. A commentator, Chris Vaughn, wonderful commentator, he says, persons thus gifted to be apostles or prophets or evangelists or pastors are themselves gifts of the ascended Christ to the whole body of Christ. We're no longer talking about gifts attracted to this one or that one. We are talking about the gift of one person that Christ gives to the whole church. That's what the text is saying here. He has given a particular special gift to the church, to the local churches, uh, in a sense as well, in giving them apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. Now, apostles and prophets, I don't think I need to belabor this point. They're the foundation. And Paul actually says in this letter, they are the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church, like in a, in a building like this, is laid but once. After the church is built, you no longer need to rebuild the foundation. So apostles and prophets, we understand this. They are, uh, they are uh, obsolete now. They, they've done their work. They, before the word of God came and was given to us in scripture form, we needed apostles uh, to convey Christ's teachings. We needed prophets to uh, convey uh, God's revelation, even in the New Testament languages, as we know in Acts, to convey the revelation of God before we had the, the fully inscripturated word in our, in, in our languages, in, our, in, in an understandable written form. We understand that. Then evangelists. Now, here there is a lot of discussion, and I'll be quick because it is not the point of the sermon. Some people believe that evangelists are still needed this day. Yes, we need evangelists. But some people believe that uh, the office of an evangelist still applies today. I don't believe it is so. The John Calvin as well, I, I believe that the office of the evangelist was the same, uh, was an office that pertained just to the first century church. It doesn't apply, or it, it, it is no longer uh, an active office in the church. Now, there are people who are gifted as evangelists, who have an evangelistic gift. That's a different thing, but the office no longer exists. It existed in that particular time in the first century because the church was expanding. An evangelist would be someone that goes out and works and is not under the, the oversight of a local church. And in this case, people like Philip were needed to be evangelists. People like Timothy, in a sense, you could argue that uh, Paul also worked as an evangelist, a uh, missionary, where it was needed uh, because there was no, well, Paul had an oversight of the church in Antioch, but Philip, for instance. But now we don't need that. Now we have uh, churches that can send out missionaries. But this is a point of contention, uh, and good brethren uh, will disagree on this point. Perhaps the minority view is actually that evangelists such as no longer an office, the majority will believe that there is still that office, um, but that is something to consider, but not for today. But then we have pastors and teachers. Pastors and teachers. If the work of an evangelist was itinerant, the work of a pastor and teacher is one that still applies today. If the work of an elder 
not something that is very nice for me to preach. I, I feel awkward preaching this as a pastor. But we need to realize this. We need to work, uh, work into our minds that elders, that pastors, are a gift of God, <coughs> a special gift of God to the church. As Paul will later say, so let the churchmen uh, carry out its, his, its ministry. So let the work the, the work of ministry might be let it, so let the church may be equipped for the work of ministry. That is the responsibility of elders and pastors. We are here to impart we are here to impart uh, wisdom from scripture so that you can do the work of minister. Uh, do the work of ministry. And I'll say more about it in a, in a minute. teaches me, that keeps me accountable, uh, but that's within the, the providence of God with the age. But it is my responsibility in particular, but the responsibility of elders to prepare the word of God, to prepare a meal for each and every one of us, that so that when we come in on a Sunday morning, on a Sunday evening, on the Thursday night, we would be instructed and equipped for the work of ministry. It is my responsibility I come here to the, up to this pulpit or back there to the Bible study, and I'm not prepared, you are rightly uh, annoyed that I didn't fulfill my responsibility. But here's the reverse side of that coin. If it is my responsibility to show up here every single Sunday and uh, schedule to come uh, with a prepared meal, or on Thursday nights with a prepared meal there, if it is my responsibility to do that, my God-given responsibility Reflect on the fact it is the responsibility as well to show up every single time to be fed in the Word of God. If you can rightly be annoyed at me and call me out for unpreparedness, or if I didn't show up on a Sunday morning uh, to preach uh, uh, and I was in, uh, there was no one scheduled, we rightly could be annoyed at me for not fulfilling my duty within the providence, uh, within this providence. I can rightly say the same thing about each and every one of you, unless providentially the end of the road, and um, that must be emphasized, unless there is bigness or other things that come in the way. But if you treat the preaching of God's word with neglect and with contempt, if you take it for granted, especially the preaching from this pulpit, which is the pulpit that the Lord has appointed for us as a body, you cannot replace the preaching of this pulpit with the Shepherd. 
and of, of building one another up, to stirring one another up, and reaching out to lost communities, reaching out to lost districts. There is the point here. And to withstand your process is not to slap the ground. It's not to be, be letting flies uh, aspire to call them out, but to withstand your process, to withstand the ministry that you're going to create, to withstand your, your process here as I come
Christ 